Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, that's where we're going to begin in just a moment. Exodus, the 20th chapter, we'll be reading an excerpt from the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel long ago. And then we'll work our way into a number of other passages in the Old and the New Testament. But we're going to start all that in Exodus chapter 20 tonight. As you're turning there, I'll join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody tonight. I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you've arrived safely. Hope you had a pleasant afternoon. Hope you made it a point to go stock up on all your milk and bread because the weather's calling for milk and bread weather. So enjoy those milk sandwiches over the next couple of days, I guess. But uh, glad it held off long enough for us to be here and to be here safely. And hopefully it'll hold off long enough after we're concluded tonight that we can all get home uh, safely once again. Good to be able to be together one more time and close out this, this Lord's Day with another hour of worship and study in the Word. In Exodus chapter 20, I'm looking here at one verse, it's verse 16, where God tells Moses the law that he was then to impart to the children of Israel in Exodus 20 and in verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let me take you back in time, 13 years ago this month, where some of you may remember seeing some things in the news and in the headlines about the scandal that occurred at Duke University. In March of 2006, a young lady by the name of Crystal Gale Mangum, who was a college student with a somewhat checkered past, she accused three Duke University students, all members of the men's lacrosse team, she accused them of sexual assault. She alleged that that attack had occurred at a party that was held at the house of two of the team captains on March the 13th, 2006. What then followed, once those accusations were put out, was really just an unprecedented media frenzy. All kinds of media from every corner of the country descended upon Durham, North Carolina, and seemingly, within a very short period of time, seemingly everybody knew all of the details of this story. It was pretty quick that everybody was just sure that they were an expert of everything that had happened there and everyone was calling for immediate and swift and harsh punishment for those three boys. Even the district attorney kind of got swept up in the hysteria as he suggested that this actually was racially motivated and that it was indeed a hate crime. The result was Duke suspended the entire lacrosse team for the next two games on March the 28th. The next week, as that frenzy continued to build and to escalate, the lacrosse coach at Duke was terminated, was forced to resign. Two days after that, Duke canceled the entire season for the rest of the, for the rest of the season for the entire lacrosse team, as the university was just reeling from a big black eye all of the negative attention that they were receiving in the press. Then a year went by. A year of investigation a year of examining and looking at the case. And then on April the 11th, 2007, more than a year after the charges were first leveled, and more than a year after all the fallout that went with it, North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper, he had a press conference in which he dropped all charges. He announced that those three young men who had been charged were actually innocent because those charges were entirely fabricated. They had been made up and those three boys were wrongly accused. Their lives, the lives of their family, 
the lives of their teammates and their coaches, the reputation of the university, the prosecuting attorney, the local police there, and many others were damaged and they were hurt and they were marred and they were changed forever all because someone made the decision to bear false witness. How much thought have you given to the ninth commandment You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Have you thought about that much? You ought to think about it. And you ought to think about it not because it's included in the Ten Commandments and in the Law of Moses. You ought to think about it because Jesus incorporated that into His covenant, the new covenant under which you and I live even today. This commandment is about having a respect for truth and for justice. In fact, I would have you notice as you look at verse 16, I want you to notice that the command is not, thou shalt not lie. That's sometimes what we kind of reduce it to, thou shalt not lie, but that's not actually what the command is. This is a specific kind of deceit that is spelled out here and in other places as being absolutely abhorrent and disgusting to God. It is the kind of falsehood that occurred 13 years ago at Duke University It is the kind of falsehood that continues even today whenever someone makes a false charge against another. And so I wonder, just how concerned are we about this particular sin? Because make no mistake about it, God is very concerned about it. He was so concerned about it that it made His original top ten list. This evening, I want us to think a little bit about what the Bible says about bearing false witness. There were some events that have happened in the media here in the last couple of months that kind of got me to thinking about this and wanting to explore it a little bit more and to study it a little bit further. And so I want to do that with you this evening. I want to explore this idea of bearing false witness. Let's see what this commandment, first of all, what it meant for the nation and the people of Israel when that law was first given. And then let's apply that and bring that forward to today as we think about the ramifications for us as Christians living in 2019. Now, you'll notice on the screen that I've got the imagery up here of the idea of the hand on the Bible. That's the idea of swearing on the Bible. And we see that most commonly in a courtroom setting, right? And that is, I'm using that intentionally, because this command, that's actually what it's talking about, is it's the idea of lying that is prohibited in a court of law, in a legal setting. The terminology there of bearing witness, that really ought to be a big clue to us, that this is set squarely in a legal context. The Israelites were not to testify to what was not true. And we need to understand a little bit about why that was so important to the Lord. Why did God care about this so much that He legislated upon it there in the very first ten commands that He gave to His people? Because all of the laws that God gave to Israel... And the truth is, all of the laws that God gives to us today, they're not just given just kind of arbitrarily and capriciously, no. Those laws oftentimes reveal an awful lot about the lawgiver. And that is absolutely the case with this particular law. Namely, the fact that God is a God of truth and justice. That is absolutely fundamental to understanding not just the ninth commandment, but that is fundamental to our understanding of who God is, the nature and the characteristics of God. Can we just run a few passages about that? Look in Romans chapter 3. Let's start there. In Romans the third chapter, 
Paul writes this. I want to, I want to combine three or four ideas right here in a row. In Romans chapter 3, there in verse 4. In Romans 3 and in verse 4, Paul says, Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul says that God, He is truth. Truth is just woven and stitched in to the very character of who God is and what He's all about and everything that He stands for. And I want you to know that that's not just God the Father. Would you look in John 1, please? In John chapter 1, we're told this about the Son. In John chapter 1, as John is introducing his gospel, and this is this great introduction about Jesus here in the first several verses. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says that the Word, that's Jesus, He became flesh and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of truth. In many ways, Jesus is the the physical embodiment and personification of truth. He came to this earth to show us what truth looks like in action. And if you'll find 1 John chapter 4, what you'll find there is that God the Spirit is also defined by truth. In 1 John chapter 4, this is verse 6. In 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 6, John writes there, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That's the apostles. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The Holy Spirit is also described in terms of truth, that He is the He's the bringer. He is the teacher of truth. Which is why it should then come as no surprise to us that this book, This book that we've all got in our laps right now, this book that the Spirit guided men in the writing and the the recording of, of God's Word, that this book is summarized as a book of truth. Jesus said so in John 17. Look in John the 17th chapter in that great prayer that Jesus prayed. In John 17 and in verse 17, Jesus says there, John 17, 17, He says, sanctify them in the truth Your Word is truth. The reason that we believe the Bible, the reason that we trust the words of the Bible, the reason that we act upon the words that are found in the Bible is because we believe that there is nothing false about this book. We believe that God is incapable of lying first and foremost and that then every word that He had recorded on the pages of this book are absolute truth. And so, if God places a great premium on truth, places a great premium on that in Himself and in His character and in the character of His Son and the character of His Spirit, places a premium on truth when it comes to His Word, and it stands to reason that God expects truth to be an important part in the life of His people. And that's exactly what I want us to think about next and really for the remainder of this lesson. That God expects that His people will have a concern for truth Just as He does. Remember, when God first spoke these words in Exodus chapter 20, He's speaking to the Israelite people. He's speaking to a group of people who are about to go into a pagan land. And they're going to overtake that land, but as a result of being in that land, they're going to be surrounded on every side by falsehood. They're going to be surrounded by people who believe in false gods. They're going to be surrounded by people who are engaged in 
false worship. There's so much falsehood prevalent in the land to which they were going. And the Israelites, they were to be just the opposite of that. The Israelites are going to go in the midst of all this falsehood and they're going to radiate light. They're going to radiate the light of God. They're going to radiate the truth of God. They were to be a reflection of the Lord who is the very embodiment of truth and justice. And you know what? That wasn't just true for the Israelite people. That's always been true for God's people. That we would, for example, we would come to a knowledge of the truth, as 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says. That we would have a love for the truth, as Zechariah 8 verse 19 says. That we would always be people who speak the truth, Ephesians 4 verse 15. That we would even worship in such a way that it is according to the truth, John 4 verse 24. If God is characterized by truth, then God wants His people to also be characterized by truth. That when folks see us as we go about in our daily lives, folks will realize, you know what? That's a person of truth. That's a person of integrity. That's a person of honesty. That's a person that, you know, they're just different from everybody else in this world. Now, as you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, I want you to notice, and I'm going to say this again, that the command there in verse 16 is not just some blanket prohibition against all forms of lying. Now, that certainly is not to say that lying in general is okay. Because there are other parts of the law of Moses that would talk about and would, would prohibit other facets of lying. And the New Testament prohibits other forms of lying and just lying in general as well. But this command in Exodus 20.16 is very specific. It is about bearing false witness against your neighbor, against your fellow man. And the reason that I believe that that particular form of deceit is, is singled out here is because a society that tolerates false witness is a society that just cannot stand. Let me illustrate that with one of the laws that was given to the people. Look in Leviticus, please. In Leviticus chapter 20, I don't often have us read passages in Leviticus because Leviticus Leviticus is kind of dry sometimes. But let's notice a verse here that we can work with a little bit. In Leviticus chapter 20, look at the very end of the chapter. In Leviticus 20 and in verse 27, here's one of the laws that God gave to His people. In Leviticus 20 and verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Okay, so, alright, there's the law clearly stated. Don't be involved in occult activity. That's pretty clear. And the penalty for breaking that law, that's also pretty clear, isn't it? You be involved in that, you're going to be stoned to death. You're going to die, you're going to pay for that with your life. Let me ask you now, as you think about that, how would that work, practically? How exactly, what would be the process of that happening if you were in the nation of Israel at that time? Well, it would all have to start with somebody saying, I saw him. I did. I saw Stuart. I saw him consulting with a medium. I saw him involved in witchcraft. I did. I saw him being involved in occult practices. I saw it with my own eyes. And he must die. That's what the law says. He must pay for that with his life. We must stone him. I can testify to him breaking that law. In the Old Testament, everything depended upon the witnesses, on the testimony. Of a witness. 
There were not security cameras where we could pull the footage out and we could verify whether or not Stuart was involved in that. They did not have fingerprint evidence back then. They didn't have DNA tests that they could run to verify that. No, it all boiled down to somebody being willing to stand up and to say, I saw it. I was a witness. Here now is my testimony. Now, if you were the accused person, imagine you're Stuart here, how important is it that the testimony of the witness, me in this case, how important is it that the testimony of the witness be truthful? Because if Stuart was not involved in witchcraft and things of the occult, and I then come along and I provide false testimony, I bear false witness, then what could happen to Stuart? He could lose his life. He could be stoned to death for something he never even did. Well, what if Stuart then had some witnesses of his own? What if he had some witnesses, two or three people, who they could then corroborate his story? They could vouch, hey, he didn't do that. I know where he was that day. He wasn't going down talking to the witch doctor. No, I can prove that this other person, Josh, he's actually providing false testimony in this case. What would be the penalty for that? What would be the penalty for me bearing that false witness? Well, the law of Moses tells us, would you look in Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy chapter 19, the penalty for bearing false witness, it was severe. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, this is verse 16. In Deuteronomy 19 and in verse 16, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Think about that. Here I bore false witness, and somebody's called me out on that, and now i got to go and stand before the Lord. Going to stand before the Lord, and before the priest and the judges who were in the offices in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil person from your midst. Okay, what happens here? Well, what happens here is I get justice administered to me. And what that says to me is that says to me that God takes this bearing false witness stuff, He takes it pretty seriously. You know, for whatever reason in our minds, we tend to rank lying and deception and things that kind of go along with that. We kind of rank that down near the bottom of our list of terrible sins. We don't put it up here near the top with stuff like murder or adultery or stealing, which were the other commands that preceded that on the list of the Ten Commandments. We just don't have it anywhere in the ballpark of those kinds of things. But after looking at what the Bible has said thus far, I'm, I'm really not so sure that we ought to do that. God's commitment to truth and God's commitment here to justice sees to it that a false witness is going to be rooted out. What did it say there at the end of verse 19? Purge the evil person from your midst. You're going to get that out of there so that truth and righteousness and justice can prevail. In fact, there's a great verse in Proverbs chapter 14. Would you find Proverbs, please? In Proverbs 14, here's a passage that actually provides kind of a nice summary for what God was really trying to convey in the ninth commandment. In Proverbs chapter 14, look at verse 25. There's so many passages in the Proverbs that talk about honesty and integrity, and this is one of them. In Proverbs 14 and verse 25, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. 
The ninth commandment, ultimately, is about saving lives. It is about having a respect for truth. And when we have a respect for truth, that's good for society as a whole. But furthermore, me as an individual, that helps keep me in harmony with God, who is the God of all truth. Now, let me talk about what all of that meant for them back then, and making a couple of points along the way for us. What more specifically tonight? What does this stuff mean for you and me? This command of thou shalt not bear false witness, what's the takeaways for us in all of this? Well, let's just start by recognizing something that maybe you might be surprised to hear me to say, but I do think we need to start by recognizing that honesty is not the best policy. Now again, that may sound kind of strange considering all the stuff that we just got done reading, but I want you to hear me out. The reason that I say that honesty is not the best policy is because policies can be broken. Policies can be changed. If you go to the store, if you go to some store and you purchased an item there and you say, hey, I'd like to bring this piece of merchandise back. I really can't use it and I don't want it, but I don't have my receipt... Well, there's a chance that the person on the other side of the counter, the manager might come along and say, well, I'm sorry, but our policy is that you have to have a receipt in order to return that merchandise. But you know what? Since I know you, I see you come in here pretty often, you seem like a good person, you're a good customer, seem like you have a good reputation in the community, then I'm going to make an exception for you. I'm going to make an exception to that policy. Do you see now where I'm going with this? Honesty is not some policy that we can employ whenever it seems best and most fitting, but from time to time we can kind of tweak it. Maybe we can make an exception in order to get ourselves out of a jam. Or maybe we can cast dispersions on somebody else so that we don't get in trouble. We can kind of pick and choose when honesty is going to be utilized and when it's not going to be utilized. Listen to me very carefully here. Young people, listen especially. Honesty isn't a policy. Honesty is God's law. That's what we need to tell our kids, parents. Don't tell your kids honesty is the best policy. Tell them honesty is the very law of God. And if we are to be God's people, then truth and integrity and honesty, it needs to be just as much a part of our character as it is a part of God's character. And there are absolutely no exceptions to that. We must make honesty and truth part of our identity as the children of God. Can I illustrate that for you? If somebody comes to me and they start calling me, Hey, Mr. Jones. How you doing, Mr. Jones? Good to see you today, Mr. Jones. After two or three times of that, I'm going to stop and say, Hey, well, hold on. You must have got wrong information from somebody. I'm I'm not Mr. Jones. I'm McKibben. Josh McKibben. If you want to call me Mr. McKibben, that's fine. But it's McKibben, not Jones. Well, okay, appreciate that, Mr. Jones. I'll see you later. Hey, whoa, 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 hold on, buddy. It's McKibben, not Jones. All right, thanks, Jones. Good to see you. It's McKibben. Do you see what I'm doing there? That name, that's part of my identity. It's not everything about my identity, but it is a big part of my identity. I wouldn't let somebody just change my name. In the same way, bearing false witness ought to be as unthinkable to us as changing our name. That I can't do that. That is part of my identity. And as a follower of Christ, I am to be a person of truth. 
Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I'm trying to be like Jesus. Truth then is not some policy for me. Truth is part of who and what I am as Christian. Which means secondly, and really in some ways this ought to go without saying, but lying about and slandering others is just completely off the table. It's just not an option for the child of God. Now, once again, I want to try to keep this commandment, kind of keep it within the context of how it was originally given. Because this was about bearing false witness about another person in some kind of a legal setting, in a legal proceeding. That said, most of us are probably never going to testify in a courtroom. I've testified many times in a courtroom in my previous line of work. I did a lot of that. But many of you are never going to do that. Many of us will never be deposed under oath in some kind of a legal proceeding. And so we might be thinking, well, it's kind of hard to apply this particular commandment to our circumstances if we're never going to be in that kind of court. Well, there is another court that we can testify in. And in fact, most all of us do it on a daily basis. And that's in the court of public opinion. And we possess very powerful tools in our day and in our time that allows us to give our testimony, if you will. We can give our testimony in the court of public opinion and we can give that testimony literally to the entire world. I'm thinking about what the internet has made possible. And specifically, I'm thinking about social media. I'm thinking about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I could right now, I could pull out my phone and I could go on Facebook and I could testify in just a matter of a couple of seconds, I could testify to a lie. I could do that. And many of you could pull out your phones and you could do it just like that as well. I could bear false witness with the mere click of a button and that then could go everywhere. It's not just limited to me and my close circle. It can go to everywhere and to everybody. I can sit at my keyboard and I can forward an email to someone that contains lies and it contains slander and it contains untruths and I could send that to everybody in my contact list, every email address that I can think of and in so doing, I am bearing false witness. Can I sharpen on this a little bit? It's easy for me to kind of talk about that in somewhat broad general terms. Can I sharpen that a little bit? What about the things that get said online and on social media? The things that get posted on those places about our government officials, our elected leaders and politicians and the like. What about the things that get said about those people that just kind of spread like wildfire all over social media? I'm not thinking of anybody here in particular, but I have many friends. I have many friends who are Christians who post some of the most vile and ugly and slanderous and blatantly false things about our current president and about our current governor and about many other of our current elected leaders. And by that same token, let me just address every political affiliation in the room. By that same token, I also have friends who posted all kinds of vile 
and ugly and slanderous and blatantly false things about our previous president and our previous governor and all the elected officials around them. It seems that people today, not just Christians, but people in general, have convinced themselves that, you know what, if I disagree with that politician's position, if I disagree with his various policies, then that then gives me the right to lie about them. And I can then spread all kinds of false information that I have not researched. I have not Googled it and looked it up to see if it's actually true. I cannot actually personally testify to the validity of it. But since I have this big giant platform from which to speak, I'm going to speak and I'm going to bear false witness about them. I remember back during the 2016 election. There's a brother in Christ up in Indiana, a preacher actually, Preacher that I admired and thought a lot of. And he, po- he would often post lots of this political stuff. But he shared and posted a meme about Hillary Clinton. About how she was running a child sex slavery operation from a pizza joint in downtown Washington, D.C. I saw that and I thought, come on, brother. What are you doing? And so I sent him a message. I did. I sent him a personal message. I said, brother, why, why would you post that? And actually, why would you leave it on there for hours and hours on end? You know, look, I'm not trying to defend Hillary Clinton. I'm not some kind of person that supports her politics in any kind of way. But you know what? When you spread something like that, that has never been proven by any kind of credible source to my knowledge, why then would you take that and speak and utter a lie about someone just because you happen to disagree with that individual? Just because you happen to find their politics distasteful? And he replied back to me and he said, well, you can't prove that it isn't true. To which I said, brother, can you testify that it is true? And at that point, he stopped talking to me. And that's sad. And it makes me want to ask just Christians in general. Christian, how is that kind of thing anything but a clear violation of this command in Exodus 20 and verse 16 about not bearing false witness against your neighbor. And of course that would go not just for our politicians, but that would go even for like a company. Here's a particular company that I don't really like their practices. I don't like what they stand for. So I'm going to go on social media. I'm going to start telling everybody all kinds of awful and terrible stuff about this company, even though it's not true, even though I've not researched it to find out if it is true. I'm just going to say it anyway because I don't like them. That would go for anybody or any other kind of entity. As a child of God, as someone who is to be committed to honesty and integrity, I need to be certain that what I say, what either comes out of my mouth or what I type on a keyboard, that what I am testifying to, that it is truth. If I never lie and if I never slander about another person, then I can always be confident that I have not committed the sin of bearing false witness against another. But of course what that means thirdly is that means that there are going to be some occasions where I'm going to see the need to just restrain my lip. I'm going to have to bite my tongue and just stay silent. Would you find Proverbs again this time in chapter 18? In Proverbs chapter 18, there the wise man says in verse 13. In Proverbs 18 and in verse 13, Solomon writes there, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly. It is his shame. 
Now, I, I don't want to turn this into the bash Facebook lesson. I'm afraid that's the way it's going to end up coming across by the end of it all. But I am pretty sure that if everybody in the whole world practiced Proverbs 18, verse 13, I'm pretty sure that Facebook would go dark. I'm pretty, nobody would even use it anymore. There wouldn't even be anything to post anymore if we all practiced Proverbs 18, verse 13. Because so many things happen in our world, and with media parked on every doorstep, that information can be, boom, just shot out instantly. And there's all kinds of things where a story breaks. Some news corporation sends out word about some story. And we weren't there. We didn't see that incident happen. We can't corroborate what was reported. We can't give any kind of first-hand testimony about the thing. But instead of us saying, hmm, I'm going to need to gather some more information about that. I don't quite have all of the facts and all the info that I need. I'm going to have to wait until I can make a more informed decision about this thing. Instead, social media has become the place where I'm just going to jump in with both feet even though I've got like this much of the story, this much of the information, and I'm just going to unload. Oh, I tell you what, they ought to fire that guy. Oh, I tell you what, we ought to boycott that company. Oh, I tell you what, those Duke players, yeah, every one of them, they ought to be suspended, throw them under the jail, and throw away the key. Has anybody in the last few weeks, anybody seen this guy's face in the news? This is Jesse Smollett. He's an actor on a hit television show on the Fox Network. And last month, or maybe it was at the end of January, he reported that he had been jumped uh, on the street or in an alley in Chicago and that he had been beat up by two muscled-up, jacked-up guys who then used racial slurs and homophobic slurs while they were attacking him. Immediately, as soon as he went to the police station and filed his charges, almost immediately, that information, that, that, that news story, it just spread like a virus. That's where we get the idea of a viral story. And celebrities who knew this guy, and senators who were in high positions of power, all of them came out of the woodwork saying, I tell you what, that was a hate crime what happened to him. It was a modern day lynching, one senator said. Those attackers, they should be thrown under the jail and the key ought to be thrown away on them. Well, three weeks after that happened, after police had had enough time to do a little bit more thorough investigation, Jesse Smollett, he was arrested. And he was arrested on charges that he had staged that entire ordeal. And in fact, that he had filed a false police report. That the men that he had had, had had attack him, that he actually had paid them to do that. And allegedly what he was doing in all of this was he was trying to garner some sympathy and to gain some leverage so that he could get a raise on the television show for which he worked. And suddenly all of those people who were instantly outraged when the first story came out, suddenly all of those people are having to backtrack. They're having to redact their statements that they had made. They're having to delete the tweets that they had put out because they had rushed to a very hasty judgment. In fact, I would even caution us right now that even if we're now with this information and we're inclined to, we're going to go on social media, we're going to talk to people and we're going to start telling everybody, oh, here's the truth, everybody. I think I'd even be careful about that. Because three weeks from now, I think that may not even be the whole story. We may find out a whole other layer to all of this. Do you see? Do you see the wisdom of Proverbs 18, 13? Do you see the danger in giving an answer before you hear the whole story? When we don't have all of the information, we can rush to judgment. 
And we can end up saying things that are inaccurate and we can end up bearing false witness. If you're still in Proverbs 18, drop down to verse 17. In verse 17, Solomon goes on to say, the one who states his case first seems right. Hey, the guy who went and got his story out there first, he seems like he's telling the truth. That is, until the other comes and examines him. Maybe what I ought to be asking is, I ought to be asking, why Why do I feel the need to be just so quick to judge about stuff? Why do I feel the need to offer my opinion about anything that comes down the pike when I don't have all the facts? When I have a proper respect for truth, when I have a desire to, to never be guilty of bearing false witness, then there's going to be some occasions, there's going to be some moments in my life where I'm just going to have to say, hey, I don't know. I really can't speak to that. And I don't want to speak to that, lest I be testifying to a lie. And what all of this means this evening for us, is that if we do not ever want to be guilty of the sin of bearing false witness, then what that means is, is that means we're going to have to train our hearts to love truth and to love justice. The passage I need here is in the Minor Prophets. It's in Micah chapter 6. In Micah 6, you may have difficulty finding the book of Micah. I often do. I cheated and I already marked mine ahead of time. But it's a passage that probably many of you even know or at least know parts of it by heart. Because there the prophet says in Micah chapter 6 and in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That passage really challenges me. Do I love justice? Do I love what is right? Do I want to see to it that not only am I treated fair, but that other people are treated fairly? Our world many times just doesn't have a whole lot of regard for that. Our world does not always love truth and justice. Our culture is really pretty quick to, to misrepresent people because they want to get their way and they want to push their agendas. But God's concern in the ninth commandment is that truth would prevail and that justice would be rendered. The question is, do I share the concern that my Lord does? That is a commitment that I'm going to remind you, it's a commitment that starts from within. It begins in the heart. Do I love truth? Do I love truth so much that I want to see righteousness and justice succeed always? Do I want people to be treated fairly and justly? What do I want? What do I treasure in my heart? And the reason it's important to work in the heart here is because where did Jesus say that lying and false witness comes from? Where do those things begin? They emanate in the heart. Matthew chapter 12. And so I need to work on my heart. I can do that in a number of ways. Do that in prayer. Do that through the study of the Bible. I can do that in worship. I do that when I'm in the fellowship of believers. When I spend time with my brothers and sisters in Christ and being encouraged and built up by them. When I'm doing all of those things so that my heart can be shaped to love truth, to love it above all else. When I love what is true, then I can do Micah 6 verse 8. I can do justice. I can love kindness, and I can walk humbly with my God. One more passage this evening, and the lesson will be yours. In Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs 6, we'll let this be the final verdict 
on what the Bible says about false witness. In Proverbs chapter 6, in a kind of a famous passage to many of us, this is the list of the six things that the Lord hates. Yea, verse 16, yea, seven that are an abomination to Him. What does the Lord hate? Verse 17, He hates haughty eyes and a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That ninth commandment from so long ago, it reminds us that our God is a God of truth. He is a God who hates a false witness. If I am going to be His child, if I am going to live in His way, then I must mirror that same attitude in my own life. Now as we get ready to sing the song of invitation, I'll go back to what I said a few moments ago in talking about Jesus. That Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. As Jesus Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. It is only through that gate of truth that we will ever be able to see God one day, to live with Him for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian this evening, then we are encouraging you to yield and to submit yourself to the way and the truth and the life, to submit your ways and submit your life to Jesus Christ. You can do that tonight by confessing Jesus as Lord, repenting and turning from sin and being baptized in water You do that, all of your sins will be washed away. You'll be in Christ. The Lord will add you to His church. Your name will be recorded in that Lamb's book of life. You can begin that journey with the rest of us as we strive to go to heaven. Brother or sister, it may very well be that there is deceit in your heart. There may be some falsehood in your heart and in your life, and it needs to be rooted out. It may be something of a public nature that maybe you want to call upon us to pray with you about. You want, you're seeking our forgiveness, but more importantly, you're seeking God's forgiveness for that. And if we can help you and encourage you to serve the Lord in a better way, then we would definitely treasure that opportunity. Whatever your need may be this evening, would you take advantage of this moment right now to respond to the gospel? Do that while we stand and while we sing.